This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. Today, we are continuing our Pride Oscar flashbacks, our second to last. I can't believe June's almost over uh, with 1998's Gods and Monsters. Um, but before that, we're going to dive into the Emmy race because Emmy voting is ongoing right now. And that means the Emmy ballot is out. And David, for Friday's Awards Insider newsletter, you took a deep dive into the ballot itself, which, you know, if you know what you're looking for, can have a lot of really fun surprises. Um, but not everybody knows what they're looking for. So why don't you, you explain a little bit of what you found in there? There's lots of surprises as ever in this year's ballot. One thing I always look for to start is the way that studios submit writers and directors and and the strategy behind them, because there is a lot of strategy behind them. There's fear over vote splitting um, and just making sure that they get both nominations and wins. Um, So in the case of Succession this year, I was pretty shocked to see they only submitted one episode in writing, which they have done before. But because it's such an overwhelmingly strong frontrunner in drama, I think you could safely expect them to get multiple nominations and still be able to win there. But they have submitted only um, the Connors Wedding script by Jesse Armstrong, which I think HBO is hoping and I would agree is pretty much guaranteed to win in that case. It doesn't feel like any other script would get much of a run against it. It's fascinating that they didn't do the finale, right? Like, Yeah, that- it's unusual. Yeah. Um, And I believe on the directing ballot, the same is true. Uh, They submitted three directors, um, but you can only submit one director. So you can't do like two Mark Mylott episodes, for instance. And I believe they also submitted Connor's Wedding for him, Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to a couple other episodes by other directors. Um, So that's clearly the episode that they believe in the most. And I I think, you know, rightly, it was the episode that got the most attention and that I think people immediately recognize by title. Um, yeah. Even though it's the one where Logan dies, not we don't call it Connor's wedding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but so that's interesting. You have a lot of HBO shows, I think, feeling their way in. Like The Last of Us only submitted the third episode, which, again, the third episode, yeah. uh, which everybody talked about, um, the the Murray Bartlett-Nick Offerman love story in both writing and directing and nothing else. That's fascinating. Like, not to totally interrupt you, but like that episode is, it is part of The Last of Us, but it's not really what the tone of the rest of the series is at all. Like, you don't have your stars in it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah. to me, that's very much gaming who's voting for your show. <laughs> like, who the Television <laughs> Academy is versus who the average Last of Us fan is, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, we talked about that a lot when the show was on, you know, that was the episode that kind of hooked me in and said, okay, I can watch the rest of the show now. And I would bet that's true of a lot of voters too. So again, it's, it's all about gaming the ballot as best you can. And when you have succession set to dominate, you can't spread yourself too thin. So that's a good example of them not doing that. (laughs) 
But then you have some other shows that really seem to be doing exactly that. Yeah, I was I was bummed to see Mrs. Davis kind of flub the writing ballot. <laughs> it's a show that for Peacock could have been a definitely like the place it would get recognized would be in writing. The writer's branch has been more accommodating to, you know, more esoteric weird shows in the past. But they submitted five episodes and no voter is going to be able to differentiate between those five, really, except for a handful who really love Mrs. Davis. Yeah. And because almost all the other major limited series submitted like one episode where it's an easy, yep, I like that show, I'm going to vote for that. In the case of Love and Death, David E. Kelly was the only writer, so you could only submit one thing anyway. It just means that you're you're kind of taking yourself out of, out of consideration there, which is not great strategy. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe Mrs. Davis will magically show up. But I think generally you're going to find this year that those who submitted too much on these ballots are going to cancel themselves out and not compete. Does that mean that the White Lotus could only submit one as well? Because Mike White's That's the only correct. writer. Okay. In I mean, both writing and directing. I mean, we've talked about the like HBO strategizing within itself thing. Like, is the, are The Last of Us and The White Lotus submitting in drama kind of knowing that they're going to get steamrolled by succession? Well, what's interesting is if you look at, like, let's game out the directing category. I would say Succession probably would get all three directing nominations that it submitted. Then you have The White Lotus. Then you have The Last of Us, which submitted smartly. And then you really don't have a lot of room left. There will be seven slots. You know, you have shows like The Better Call Saul finale. That that branch always goes for finales. Andor submitted really smartly, only one episode. So you don't really have a lot of room beyond that. So HBO sort of (laughs) just took over it in some ways. They get to ride right on top of it. Yeah. I'm always curious with these deep dives you do. You know, you talk about strategy, but how much politics and ego management is involved in this process? Rebecca or David, do you guys like have insight on that? I imagine there's plenty. There's plenty. (laughs) 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 Well, sometimes it's not, there's not a case of we can only submit one writer. Um, sometimes it's kind of baked into contracts that you have to submit certain actors, um, Mm -hmm. say. I noticed with The Bear, they did submit Abby Elliott, who really was not in the first season a lot, but they did not submit Liza Colonzaeus, uh, who I think had a stronger arc and was, gave a more interesting performance. Um, I would guess that was due to, you know, name recognition and just the fact that Abby Elliott's more of a, maybe a draw for a voter, you know, having the comedy surname that many know, et cetera. Um, the thing about the comedy actors is interesting. Is it just, you know, Abbott Elementary is, doesn't really have lead actors? Like, is this just not a, like, not a boom time for men in comedies? I think especially if you look at, like, the fact that Bill Hader and Jeremy Allen White are two of those five, and I wouldn't describe those performances <laughs> as particularly funny, um, probably not, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about actors, too, because you mentioned the Succession cast in your um, in your write-up, and again, them being really conservative. But there were some actors I was kind of bummed didn't make it in for consideration. Yeah. There's another example of, especially, I think, in the supporting actor category, wanting to get as many people in as possible. So people like David Rashi, who really popped this year, really that entire sort of behind-the-scenes board group, uh, was not submitted on the ballot. Um, but you have returning nominees like Nicholas Braun, Matthew McFadden, who won, uh, Alexander Skarsgård, who was nominated in Guest, and I think is a really strong supporting contender this year. And then they're also trying to get people like Alan Ruck in there for the first time. So it makes sense. You're probably not going to get more than four nominees in that field. Um, but it's still a bummer when a lot of those actors who've been with the show from the beginning did really great work. Um, but those are hard choices to make. Richard, will you write a series for Zoe Winters so that we can get her an Emmy nomination? Yeah, we're um, I've broken strike lines. I'm we're already in production. <laughs> yeah. It's worth the penalties from the WGA to make it happen. Yeah, they'll never let me in now, but that's okay. Yeah, I was surprised they didn't put her on because she got a lot of attention, and supporting actress isn't as strong for them. But I guess they just want all the White Lotus actresses to. God, yeah. Maybe next year HBO won't have such a stranglehold on like two of the three categories. And we can, um... <laughs> this season of Succession will be up for next year's SAGs. Is that correct? Yep. So they'll win ensemble for that. So maybe that that will include the people who weren't submitted. Yeah, friends. it will. It will. If, yeah. if they appear in over fifty percent, then they're included. Yeah. And they did. 
I'm not prepared to do that math of figuring out which TV shows will be at the SAG Awards in December because <laughs> you're, you're always surprised <laughs> by which shows are still eligible. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, well, maybe we can talk more about surprising eligibility and talk about the limited series at the Emmys, um, which we're writing about on the site this week. And we mentioned somewhat last week because we were talking about, um, also we were even talking about comedy or drama because beef fits into both and yet it's in the limited series category, which is still a mystery we haven't really solved. But David, I think you're writing about it. It is kind of poised to dominate. So maybe it was a good choice. Yeah, it feels like this is if HBO has drama in its pocket, this feels like Netflix's to lose because before Beef uh, was submitted as a limited series and assumed to go comedy, it, it seemed like it was Dahmer's category. Um, and I still think it'll do well. I think it has a chance to win a couple acting races uh, for Evan Peters and lead actor and Nisi Nash Betts and supporting actress. And I'm really excited to see how well Beef can do. It's it's a necessary jolt of energy to this category, which has felt quite sleepy. Um, it was a popular show. It was critically acclaimed. Ali Wong was great. Steven Yeun was great. It's got an interesting supporting cast that could pop up more than people are expecting. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a matter of just how how well it can do in the nominations because it's it's a little bit more of an unknown, just given that it's it's a fresher face in this category and has some unknown names that could break through. It'd be really exciting to see some of the supporting cast get attention as well. I feel like Allie and Steven are locks, but yeah, I think it definitely feels like the front runner to me. And who who are you rooting for in the supporting cast in particular? Um, I think young Mazzino who plays Steven Young's brother is really, really good in that role. And he's definitely not a known name, but I think we'll be seeing more from him after this. Yeah. He's great. Um, Maria Bello is really good in it, though the part is small, so I don't know if it's quite enough. But I don't know. They, I feel like they just cast it really well and, and have a lot of breakouts. So I'm hopeful Ashley Park. For it. Ashley Park. Yeah, she's great in it, too. She's got like a raunchy summer comedy coming, too. It's kind of like, you know, it'll be after Emmy voting, but I don't know. It's a good way to show your range, right? Yeah, yeah. And they and I, I interviewed Stephen recently and sort of asked about it being a limited series, and he is saying that he's sort of always envisioned it that way like maybe it's more of an anthology but he didn't like anticipate bringing Danny his character back so I don't know maybe we we all just sort of assumed because that first season was such a success that they'd want to bring it back but uh, for now it's limited so we'll see (laughs) (laughs) do we have a hunch of what's actually going like are they waiting until the Emmy nominations like what what's this because White Lotus did something similar we're still in a strike so nobody's writing anything that's true (laughs) that's what we're assuming but I don't know I mean who knows what they have planned it's even weirder than the White Lotus though I mean I think I've said this before but the White Lotus at least it did have a completely different setting and for the most part cast going into season two so you can understand the maybe attempt to return to a limited series race as an anthology. But Beef, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's not going to be them. Maybe it's not, but it didn't feel like necessarily they were ending the story there. So, yeah. I think in the acting races, there's a lot of interesting possibilities, but it does seem like for the limited series Emmy, it's really Dahmer versus Beef. Do you guys see anyone else really coming in there? I feel like Fleischman is in trouble when it came out. Like everyone was talking about those performances. Do we feel like mm-hmm. it's lost a lot of steam? So I do not because last year 
if if we all remember the way they defaulted back to inventing Anna and Pam and Tommy, I think we'll uh-huh. see a similar thing right. this year with Fleischman and Blackbird. Yeah. Um, which were a while ago, but the same thing kind of happened again this year where outside of beef, all these limited series premiered and did not make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Um, even as some, you know, got strong reviews, others did not. And I'm just not sure that any of them have that built in audience. And I don't want to say fandom for like flesh is in trouble, but uh, <laughs> there, you know, there were a small, but mighty group um, yeah. that, that will feel comfortable getting behind the show um and particularly those performances like you were saying rebecca i wonder the same thing about george and tammy um yeah, which we talked one. about uh we were talking about a lot around the tonys because it kind of felt like jessica chastain would maybe win a tony and then go on to win this emmy um richard does her emmy does her tony loss make you feel any less uh bullish on her emmy when no because there hasn't been the jody comer late arrival <laughs> you know upset <laughs> person i don't think in the in the emmys race um and also i think that that George and Tammy, it's funny because like that is not something I would ever watch unless forced by work because I just don't. It's not my kind of thing. But it seems to have a very devoted fandom. You know, it was um, very uh, really high ratings for Showtime, and um, so I think that that show was a kind of small phenomenon in a way. So yeah, I think she's probably still got the runway pretty clear. I moderated a Q&A with her and Michael Shannon last week at CAA, and it was, like, overflowing, which surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> so the audience remains there and um, passionate. And I, I think... I, yeah, yeah, I think there's sometimes that sort of, like, the Television Academy is, like, w- when someone's doing well in movies, they're like, ooh, ooh, no, us too, us too. Uh, uh-huh, Melissa uh-huh. McCarthy <laughs> winning for... Um, Mike and Molly, the same year as Bridesmaids. You know, I, I think they're just like, mm. uh, I think that the Chastain thing, they're like, okay, so we got, she won the Oscar, but now we get to claim her too. And um, I don't know, I think that is a factor. Yeah. I hope that some of the more out there performances, which are my favorites in this category, don't get lost. Um, Rachel Weiss is amazing in Dead Ringers and uh, Dominique Fishback in Swarm, who I think I've talked mm. about a lot yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. Oh, yeah, she but, was on the show very recently, yeah. You know, those are two pretty polarizing watches um so it wouldn't surprise me to see them left off but also if you watch them i don't see how you don't vote for those performances um Mm -hmm. so it's kind of walking a tricky line because best actress is quite competitive yeah, I feel kind of that way about Betty Gilpin and Mrs. Davis, which is like I don't didn't think was like an especially successful show, but she is so magnetic and she is carrying this wild tone in a, in a really impressive way. Um, but as we were saying with like the five episodes that are submitted, like how are voters going to like kind of cut through that? Maybe they don't make it through the whole show. You know, there's a lot of these shows that, like we were saying, didn't really make that much of an impact. So will they be able to find the performances there? It's it's hard to know. Yeah, very. I'm also still really pulling for um, Bill Pally in a Small Light, which we talked about a, a little while ago, David. Mm-hmm. Like a not not a hard show to watch, like despite the subject matter, um, and kind of much more traditional than some of these other shows. But she's really great in it. But it's a it's a lot of competition. That's one show where I mean, it's such a traditional Emmy contender in a lot of ways, and a really well done one at that. And I I don't hear anybody talking about it, but that could be a case of one that slips through just because it's it appeals to that audience. Mm-hmm. It is really well done. The performances are really strong. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the fact that Leah Schreiber is in it, it reminds me of Ray Donovan, which always got nominated <laughs> year after year, even as we had forgotten it existed long ago. Maybe it has a similar audience and maybe it does break through in a few places. Like Schreiber is so good and supporting actors quite thin, so he could be one to watch out for. Yeah, they've been promoting that show really heavily too. So you can imagine, like, even if general audiences aren't cl- like, clued into that much, it gets like eight nominations, and everyone's like, "Wait a second, what is this?" And it's on like five streamers, like <laughs> something, <laughs> something like that. Um, Rebecca, you were talking earlier about Stephen Yun and Ali Wong kind of feeling like guaranteed for nominations in their respective categories. Um, looking at Stephen Yun's competition, does that feel like a he has a lot of competition there? I actually don't think he has that much competition. I mean, Evan Peters, which David brought up, I think is an obvious main contender for him for again uh, for the win. And then you know we mentioned Michael Shannon, but and Taron Egerton because Blackbird has um, did really well in our last round of awards shows, um, <laughs> you know, with SAG and yeah. and things. But it was mainly Paul Walter Hauser who was winning there. But uh, but it it feels like actress is much more competitive. I feel like. 
again, we keep as saying usual. this, but an actor is just yeah. not um, as cutthroat. I think there might be room for sort of a nomination that we're a little surprised by in that group because, you know, like we haven't talked about White House plumbers at all, but would Woody Harrelson make it in for that? Or it just feels like there's actually room for some someone who may not have made it if this field was a little more crowded. So I, I think it's his to lose, um, really, this year. May I suggest Ben Wishaw? You is there a day you don't suggest Ben Wishaw? <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> not yet. He did win the BAFTA, and I, the, the overlap is a lot smaller with the TV Academy and, and the BAFTAs um, versus the Oscars. But it is there, and I feel like that's that's notable. Bad Sister. We talked about drama last week, two weeks ago, but you know, Bad Sisters also did really well there. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know how much that could matter, but um, I did notice that a lot of Emmy contenders were have already won awards. Across the pond. If I'm if I'm picking a outlier in there, it might be Daniel Radcliffe in the Weird Al movie, um, which is it's in such a no man's land of what is it? Like it's hard to remember that it is eligible in this category in particular. Like it was it premiered on the Roku channel. It was at Toronto Film Festival, but I think he's really great in that movie. That's kind of all over the place. I would really love to see him get in there. Yeah, the combination of TV movie actor and limited series actor in one category always makes me just like. (laughs) <laughs> so confused like because Sydney Sweeney has that reality mm-hmm. TV movie that is that also puts her in the lead actress group and you're just like and she's great in that too mm-hmm. yeah yeah so. I was gonna ask I didn't watch that one it, it felt like it was trying to be the like late entry shakeup race and like it didn't feel like it got that much buzz but maybe I'm underestimating it I feel like people were talking about it more than I had anticipated but maybe I just got a lot of press releases. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it's always Ber- hard to tell. <laughs> it was at the Berlin Film Festival, right? Um, and then that's when yeah, HBO was... bought it. So for a, mm-hmm. for the, for a little second there, she was like being talked about for Oscar stuff. But I think that's a tough sell. I've seen the play, um, which is it, and the movie is the same. It's just a transcript of when she was arrested, basically. Um, so I don't know if it's going to like connect in the way that something bigger and splashier would. Yeah, it's just been so hard for TV movies last few years when you have like Jessica Chastain and Ali Wong yeah. and Emily Blunt mm-hmm. and Rachel Ice in these, you know, six, seven, eight hour shows. It just it's very hard to compete. Yeah, if we want to tack on the TV movie category, which is kind of hard to do its own um, segment on, you know, the top contenders are the Weird Al movie, Fire Island, Prey, that Predator movie that premiered on Hulu that people liked, Dolly Parton's Mountain Magic Christmas. Reality, Jerry and Marge go large. It is all over the place. And maybe once we get a few years past COVID, it will get less weird, but it might be the weirdest it's ever been right now. It's like half of those should have just been theatrical movies, but yeah, uh, it's rough. It's because you th- that was the discussion around Prey. It's like, what could that have done if it had gone in theaters? Or Fire so Island, well. yeah. yeah. It is weird that there there is, a, I mean, it's not going to happen, I don't think, but a, a faint possibility that Kira Knightley could get an Emmy nomination this year. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like, because she's in Boston's Wrangler. It's just, uh, yeah, the TV movie thing is um, really peculiar, especially when you consider that, like, well, actually, no, never mind. I'm going to take that back because I did talk to someone who at at Searchlight um, about Boston Strangler, and I guess that was always planned to be streaming. So, I, I thought for a second I was like going to say, I reviewed it even. Yeah. Oh, how is yeah. it? It's solid. You know, it's okay. a good sort of reporter procedural about a true story thing that leaves room to doubt in an interesting way. And and um, Keira Knightley and Carrie Coon are both really good in it. Um, it's an Alessandro Nivola. I, he's from the area, so it makes sense. But he does one of the best Boston accents I've ever heard on screen. Oh, I'm so glad we had you on Boston accent watch. That's an important <laughs> oh, part yeah, of your beat yeah. here. I, I don't have one, even though I grew up in the city. But, um, I, I can, <laughs> but you're, I can you're sniff prime out the judge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been rooting for Kira Knightley. I feel like she's been too absent lately. So, you know, I would take that Emmy nomination. She was supposed to do The Essex Serpent. A limited series that came and went. Oh, it's sure one that we did. talked about at this time. Much last like the serpent itself. <laughs> wow, it sure did. Uh, well, that brings up Claire Danes. If we want to do supporting actress, I think the only um, limited category we haven't gotten into too much. It's kind of her uh, for Fleischman and then Nisi Nash bets for Dahmer, and then a lot of other people to choose from. But maybe they're the two with the most heat. Yeah. If you if you had two genderless supporting winners, they would win this <laughs> in a walk. <laughs> Truly, I, I just don't. I don't even. I just they those two performances have been so buzzy the whole yeah. year, and it'll be tight. I I don't know which one's going to win. Well, Danes has the one standalone episode thing to kind of behind her, but also that's a detriment because Nisi Nash Betts is in a lot more of Dahmer than Danes is in Fleischman. 
Um, but I don't know if I'm like a kind of lazier Emmy voter and I can just watch Dane's knock it out of the park in one episode versus yeah. having to sit through eight episodes of Dahmer. <laughs> I might just go that way. But um, Nice Nash Betts is really good. I maybe would have put her in lead, even though that would be too competitive and, you know. Yeah, uh, it is worth noting to go back to the ballot math that Fleischman really only submitted that episode for writing, directing, et cetera, the Claire Danes episode. So it's it's all over the ballot and that probably helps her uh, as voters catch up on the winner's side. So it's making it harder for Lizzie Kaplan though, because she's in lead, I assume. She is in lead. And yeah, I I think definitely the nomination is the reward for her, just given what we talked about with that category. Yeah. If there was a best voiceover, she would win. Oh my God. Her her narration in that show is so good. There is technically a best voiceover Emmy, but I think you have to not also be <laughs> screen. You, you can't also be the lead. Oh, okay. She's be- so good in that she's so good in that show. I, I hope she gets in at least. Yeah. I'd like to see her against like Morgan Freeman for whatever like nature docky narrated most recently. <laughs> I feel like Helen Mirren wins those a lot. I don't I need to go look back at the category. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So to move on to the Pride flashback segment of the show, we're talking about Gods and Monsters, a 1998 film by Bill Condon that I didn't realize until watching the movie and reading a bit was a huge departure for Bill Condon, who, you know, now is directing Disney musicals and made Dream Girls and, you know, really has established himself as, you know, something of an A-list director. But he had made horror movies at the start of his career, um, which is sort of what led him to this story in some ways. It's about director James Whale, who made the original Frankenstein movies back in the 30s, I believe, Um, Mm -hmm. and kind of him at the end of his life um, and his life as a gay director in Hollywood and in gay circles in Hollywood and a friendship he strikes up with our reigning Best Actor winner, Brendan Fraser, Mm -hmm. Um, which is very interesting to, to watch this movie as kind of a... You know, him, Brendan Fraser, really at the beginning of his career, this is really the first role I think I think a lot of people took him seriously in. And then there was some time in the wilderness after that. Um, Ian McKellen gets the Best Actor nomination for this. And David, would you like to share the stat about Ian McKellen that you wrote about <laughs> and will never leave my mind? The last uh, openly gay nominee in this category. Also the first. And the first. <laughs> and the first, wow. yes. What a town. Yeah. <laughs> What a town. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that that's why I picked it, because it's it's a very important movie for our purposes, quite sadly. Um, it is it's the only one. Yeah. The only one. Um, so yeah, David, you picked this. It seemed did seem like a really obvious pick for this category. Um, had you seen this uh, back then? I know you must have seen it when you wrote the story about Ian McKellen and talked about Condon, um, but what's this film mean to you? Like you said, this was a, a big move for Bill Condon, and he is an openly gay filmmaker. He went on to write the Chicago adaptation, was nominated for an Oscar for that, uh, and he's done a lot since then. He's, he's a filmmaker who I think is really interesting, um, who has done things on various scales. I, for example, like think that Kinsey's a really interesting movie that he uh, wrote and directed. For me, I mean, th- this movie is not perfect, but it's I think really well written actually. And and there's a lot going on. Um, And he's just a generally, you can feel his passion for this story that I think, Mm -hmm. I think it really comes through. I think Ian McKellen's really wonderful in it. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it definitely left some kind of impression. And obviously since I learned about its sad significance in the context of the Oscars, um, it has lingered. uh, So I'm excited we get to talk about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, um, you know, can go a lot of directions on this, but so Ian McKellen at this point, like the Lord of the Rings movies have not come out yet. He might have been filming them around the time that the Oscar season was happening. I don't know how that lines up. But he is pretty famous by the time this movie's made. You know, Bill Condon gave an interview to IndieWire talking about getting the film made on this, you know, tight budget um, with just fear of a few days. And Ian McKellen was what made it happen. Is there a concise way to sum up like who Ian McKellen is at this point and, and what this establishes him as in his career? I mean, I think to an extent, it's worth noting that he was, this is one of the best film roles he's ever had. And like, for his incredible reputation as an actor, one of the greatest living actors, he never got to show that as much on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, he had won however many like Olivier Awards by this point. I think he'd already won five, you know, which is the British equivalent of a Tony. Um, and he'd done incredible work on Broadway as well. But in terms of film, he did Richard III before this. I just skipped over the X-Men films, I realized, which I guess the but, first... Those, the 2000. 2000. Yeah, those came after. Yeah, those came after this too. Okay. This is what I think brought him into that. Yeah, exactly. And Lord of the Rings as well. Um, but before that, he was really just known as maybe the greatest stage actor alive. And that was about it. Yeah, I mean, I remember when this movie, because I was paying pretty close attention to the Oscars this year um, in 1998, and I hadn't really heard of Gods and Monsters. And I think Ian McKellen was only on my radar because I was aware that there was a Richard III that was sort of set during World War II that I was curious about, but worried I would be bored. So I never watched it. And that was kind of how I felt about this, because I was like, one is this stuffy movie. I assumed Bill Condon was a British person. He's not. I just, it felt very sort of, you know, for grownups kind of thing. And I was like 15. Um, and very invested in Shakespeare and in Love versus Saving Private Ryan. We'll um, get there. But yes. I would tell myself over the years, like, no, it's about like movie making. You should watch it. It'll be good. But I had not seen it until I watched it for this podcast. Oh, wow. Um, and I don't know if it's just seeing it as an adult, but to me, it's a little overhanged, you know? <laughs> I, I think it reminds... I, I was joking to some friends over text when I was watching it that it, this movie makes a single man look subtle. <laughs> um, yes. Which that movie is definitely not. Um, but the pool full of naked men didn't feel like a... Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I just subtle. think all this sort of, like, gay elder gay tragedy and looking back at lost love and all that like it's it's appreciated but i think when you compare the sort of depiction of queerness and world war one trauma at the same time last year's benediction just <laughs> does it a lot better than the gods and monsters but you know this was a movie that came out a long 25 years ago yep. it's frankness about this stuff you know i keep feel like i keep saying that on this series like it, you know these movies of yesteryear it's it's this is a very upfront gay movie that was won an Academy Award, uh, a big Academy Award, um, and I, that that does feel significant, even if I was sort of rolling my eyes at at the melodrama of the film. I feel like the flashbacks that are the most successful are the Frankenstein ones, right? Like the you know the line they're drawing you know, with with his, the, his note at the end of Clayton's like to Clayton friend, like quoting Frankenstein himself and the idea of a director kind of creating the people in his life the way that he would with his actors on set and like what um, James Whale has lost at this point in his career where, you know, it, I, I think what the movie wants to say, and I, you can tell me if I read the history right, is he wasn't really ostracized for being gay. Like you've got George Cukor, who's, you know, on top of the world at this point. Um, but because he made horror movies and no one took him seriously after that and the way he grapples with that. And then you see him back on the set and the way he reflects that in his relationship with Brendan Fraser's character. I thought there was a really nice power in, in those Hollywood flashbacks specifically. Yeah, it definitely made me want to read up more on James Whale. I mean, obviously, a lot of this story is fictionalized. Um, This Brendan Fraser character, Clayton, did not exist. But um, the parts of that story I found really interesting. I thought it was such a a well-done character study. And like, I just was stunned by watching Ian McKellen. I thought what he does with that role is just really, really incredible. So I had seen this years ago, but I didn't, I have the worst memory ever. So I didn't remember. <laughs> like I have the memory of a fruit fly is what I usually say. So I didn't remember much. So it was interesting to watch it now, um, especially after we've watched two, you know, our last two movies had straight actors that were, were in these really interesting lead roles. Mm. So I thought this was, this was pretty refreshing to see him play this character. Did we mention it's based on a novel? No. no. Well, yeah, he kind of one adapted screenplay, but yes. Yeah, which is notable, too, because Rebecca mentioned that a lot of it's fictionalized. And that's, I think, an important note about, you know, the way that the film toggles between this man's life and these, you know, imagined conversations, this imagined, like, you know, essentially last days uh, of his life, which gives it a certain level of freedom. But I, it also, the way that Condon does it, 
can feel a little bit clunky. I think he's a better screenwriter than he's a director. I think that's pretty safely known about him. Mm. And I think that a lot of that heavy-handed melodrama that Richard was talking about comes through just in the way it's brought to the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's working off of a novel that, from what I... I haven't read the whole thing, but from what I remember of it, is quite melodramatic. I think what I found most sort of arresting about the movie was sort of some of the meta context where you have Ian McKellen as this rare, highly respected out gay actor who, um, you know, kind of was being brought over from the British theater world uh, into Hollywood at this time. I mean, he'd done Hollywood previous, but like, you know, he this was he was about to become, you know, Sir Ian, who everyone in America knows, you know, and and to compare that to James Whale, who had a lot of success in theater in the UK, and then that his his direction of a play called Journey's End about World War One brought him to Hollywood. And I, I think there's an interesting dynamic as Whale considers the end of his life and, and then chooses to end his life, um, as McKellen, who is about the same age as Whale was when he dies, is mm-hmm. a be- just about beginning this huge new journey of his career. Um, and so even if James Whale couldn't be saved, Ian McKellen kind of picks up the baton and takes it forward um, in his own career, which I think is a sort of touching parallel or or, or connection point in this movie um, that I appreciate is not totally nihilistic about what it was to be gay in Hollywood back then compared to, say, Ryan Murphy's show called Hollywood, which has one episode (laughs) at... Noel Coward's house, I want to... Or no, it's Jim Parson plays an agent who was a real guy. He has a party, and Noel Coward's there. And it's just this horrid bacchanal of, like, mean gay men sniping at each other. And there's a little bit of that in Gods and Monsters, but it's it's a, it, it does show more how someone could just live a full life and be out at the time, even though many people weren't. Yeah, I think he's really well drawn. I mean, a lot of that is just due to how good McKellen is in the part um, and how much life he gives him. Yeah, I think that's really poignant, Richard. It's it's so nice to see an actor like McKellen in a part like this, especially as a kind of Hollywood breakout role. It's kind of a bummer that it ends where it does and it becomes what it is, which is uh, a pretty standard, I think, gay tragedy in terms of like an overarching narrative. And it's also just a very sad stat again in Oscar in terms of Oscar history and, and Hollywood history that this hasn't been done again. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, but the movie does, I think, where it feels not outdated is in the fact of him playing the role and seeing him really run away with it. Did anyone else wonder what this movie would have been like if someone else was playing Brendan Fraser's role, or was it just me? Oh, like it. Rebecca, I know when you're going to say these things now. I think we're starting to know each other too well. I mean, he, like, you you know, those first scenes when he's working the lawn, I I get the, the heartthrob thing. But Ian McKellen is just such an incredible actor. And some, so many of the scenes are just the two of them talking that yeah. I just kind of wondered um, what it would have been like with a different actor in that role. I, I really did, actually. And that that's very much a rewatch thing. Yeah. I didn't remember feeling that way, but he really stood out to me in not the best way. <laughs> there's just, it, there's nothing seductive about him. And I think that mm. even yeah. though um, Fraser's character is not, Clayton is not supposed to be playing this game, he kind of is, you know, he knows what he's doing. He knows what effect he has, especially toward the end when he's like, okay, you can draw me nude. And he knows yeah, he what he's doing. He to take his clothes off. He's yeah. giving him something, which is something very arrogant about that, um, but also kind in a strange way. And I think that n- that complexity is not really brought forth in Fraser's performance. And you think at the time, there were plenty of like hunky actors who can also do that sort of layered, wily sort of thing that maybe the role requires that um, unfortunately doesn't get here. And the interesting thing about Fraser being cast is that like, this was like, he was in a weird career point, you know, uh, The Mummy mm-hmm. was coming out the next year, so he hadn't quite entered Brendan Fraser, huge bankable movie star era yet. He was just the kind of guy from those movies, you know? He was about to release Dudley Do-Right at the same year, I think. Right, which also, that won Best Original Screenplay yeah, this year. Obviously. So Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, so I don't know, it's like, it's like it could have been a lot of people, and right. it's just odd that it's this one. And, I, you know, maybe he was just the one available, but like, or maybe the, the financier said, well, he's George of the Jungle, yeah, put, you know, put him in. Yeah. But it doesn't quite work. Do we need to do a rundown of all the hunks of the late '90s who we could see? Let me get this? my list out. Hold on, it's, it's '90. Let me. Get, I, Richard, pull up the spread. I have my books, for, one for each year. So let me get the '98 off the shelf. Um, no, I mean there. I don't. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. But like, 
they, those people were definitely out there. I mean, a young Timothy Olyphant, he was around, he was doing movies then. And he had that energy too. Yeah, you know, something like that where there's a kind of um, someone to match in opposite complement what McKellen is doing right. um, would have been interesting. It's tough to end the movie on Brendan Fraser's character, Clayton. Like, it kind of ends with a flash forward to him, like, with a successful family life, which I think is a thread running through with his character that, you know, he's got this relationship with this girl that's not really going anywhere. He's kind of disappointed his family. But it's not like the – it's so not strong compared to the James Whale story. So when you end on him, you're like, well, okay, and good for you. But, like, I miss (laughs) miss the person this movie's actually about. But you also don't want to end on a suicide, I think. There is a different, maybe tighter movie – kind of bringing to mind, speaking of Ian McKellen, Mr. Holmes, where he plays an, you know, an aging Sherlock Holmes uh, opposite Laura Linney, where there's a version of this movie that's just, that's more focused on James Whale and the maid played by Lynn Redgrave, you know, that's mm-hmm. about their kind of curious relationship. And there, a young man can enter the picture, of course, and and, and drive the action. But like, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that um, ending on Fraser, you know, Frankenstein walking in an alleyway <laughs> is, is an odd note uh, for this movie to close out on. It felt very late 90s to me. The thing about um, Bill Condon and this, you know, he's he's someone who's, I think, really tried in his career to maintain a space for queer actors and queer talent as as he's been able to. I interviewed him for the story about the lack of out gay male uh, Oscar nominees a couple years ago. and, And he had talked about how he was trying to cast a film at that point. Uh, and he was just getting nowhere to, you know, in terms of casting a queer actor in a queer role because it was a person of a certain age and he just could not get financiers to back anyone of that generation, essentially, which I thought was really interesting and, and also made me think back to this movie, made me think back to that conversation while watching this movie because McKellen, I just don't know that he has had the screen career that he's necessarily deserved for, for too long. He did a lot of like big successful movies, but I don't know that he had many roles like this that were so rich and allowed him to be really playful and show all sides of his talent. And to comment on his own legacy, you know, I mean, yeah. I think that uh, not to be shallow, but something that both McKellen and Whale shared was as young men, they were very attractive, very handsome guys, very dashing. And McKellen was, I think, about 60 when this movie came out, maybe just under. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's sort of like, oh, let me think back to my salad days, blah, blah, blah. Like he, McKellen, you can feel him connecting to this role in a specific way, um, that makes you wonder if like, I don't know, they had adapted an Alan Hollinghurst novel or, or any other queer novel yes. from the British canon. Like he could have knocked that out of the park from ages 25 on up, you know, and, um, just wasn't really given that chance. So yeah. should we talk about why Ian McKellen did not win the Best Actor Oscar and the 1998 Oscars as a whole. Yeah, we should talk about the red rave of it all, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I was uh, talk for her for a second. I was on her Wikipedia page. I've not fact-checked this, but according to Wikipedia, she's the only person to have been nominated for all of the EGOT awards and not win any of them, which is such a bummer. Oh, oh no, I have, chance. Been, I, yeah. I have, I've been nominated for all of them. I've lost every single one. <laughs> you need to adjust the Wikipedia page. Well, then. so a friend remind, reminded me when I the people I was texting while watching the movie is that the narrative, I believe or he believes, and I think I share the belief, is that like that Redgrave was going to win. And then oh. Dench swooped in at the last minute and won for like five minutes of screen time for Shakespeare in Love. She was, I believe, considered the front runner yeah. that year. And the interesting thing about Dench winning is that like, like McKellen, Dench had this lauded theater career in the UK and was just per- kind of seeping into the American movies around this time later in life. Um, so they were they were kind of parallels in that way, and then Dench won and McKellen didn't. Yeah, they really do have such parallel careers in like blockbusters yeah. that make them icons, and then they can go do whatever theater they want. But yeah, apparently the narrative was that Dench stole the Oscar from Redgrave, much like I don't know, Binoche stole it from Lauren Bacall just a few years or the, the, the year previous. Sure. Yeah, Redgrave won the Golden Globe. Kathy Bates was also around for Primary Colors. I think she won the SAG Award. But it, yeah, I think going into the Oscars, it was considered a moment for Lynn Redgrave. But of course, Shakespeare in Love had had many surprising moments that night, uh, including that one. Yeah, the rest of that supporting actress category is two more movies that I feel the way like you would 
said Richard about Gods and Monsters. Little Voice and Hillary and Jackie, which I should watch, but I worry if they're boring and old. I don't know you guys can talk about <laughs> Yeah, that. you're I've sounding like me either. at 15. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I was, that's about how old I was. I have not gotten back to them. Maybe I should. British movies about music. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Griffiths is great in that movie. I don't remember loving the movie, but Hillary and Jackie. I mean, is. I did watch all of Six Feet Under, so maybe I owe it to her. Um, but yeah, so this is the 1998 Oscars. It's Shakespeare in Love versus uh, Saving Private Ryan. But neither of those uh, feature into leading actor because Roberto Benigni wins for Life is Beautiful, which is just a... Is that the one where he jumped on the chair or is that when he won? I think that's when di- he won director. Or no, not director. Uh, that was for uh, foreign film. Foreign language, yeah. He did, yeah if he'd um, beaten Spielberg for director, that really would have been a moment. Um, yeah, I mean, Richard, you recapped this a while ago. Do you, what do you remember from re- looking back at the 98 Oscars? Well, it, it's it's funny to talk about Gods and Monsters and Lynn Redgrave and Ian McKellen because the narrative of that evening, both then and now, is the Weinstein of it all. Him, you know, basically bullying Shakespeare in love to a victory over Spielberg and running, you know, a real smear campaign and all that stuff. Um, and so these smaller, quote unquote, smaller races get a little bit overshadowed. But like, I don't know, with the, the hindsight of history, like had the force that was Benini at the time not come barreling through, much like Dench did in Sporting Actress, like, was McKellen number two to win? Probably. I think if you look at Nick Nolte for Affliction, that was going to go to um, uh, his co-star, uh, James name? Coburn. Yeah. James Coburn, thank you. Edward Norton for American History X was kind of a surprise because everyone, I think, thought that fifth slot was going to go to Jim Carrey for The Truman Show. That didn't happen. Hanks was not probably going to win for Saving Private Ryan. Well, he's great in it, but like that's more of an ensemble, and that was and more of a Spielberg. Just, he just won yeah, twice. He had just won twice. So yeah, if you if you pair those other three away, it's McKellen versus Benini, and um, obviously mm-hmm. McKellen has had the more enduring career, but that's not what the Oscars uh, are doing. You know, they, they, They're more responding to the current zeitgeist than they are thinking long term. Gods and Monsters and Affliction were both distributed by Lionsgate, which was basically brand new at this point. Like they had had, you know, kind of some cheesy Texas Chainsaw movies, um, but this is kind of their first two Oscar movies. Um, it's fascinating that they had both of these in this one year and that they got, you know, three, four acting nominations for these two very tiny movies, Affliction, another movie from this period that I have not seen. Um, But you imagine them trying to go up against DreamWorks with Saving Private Ryan and Miramax at the peak of their powers. Like, (laughs) how could anyone stand a chance against those machines? Yeah. And they got a big screenplay win. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I didn't watch Bill Condon's Oscar speech. I feel like I should have. Um, It it must have been a, a lovely moment. Yeah. I mean, he beat out some pretty tough competition there, so... Do you feel like Oscar history would be different if Ian McKellen had won? Would we not still be dealing with him as the only openly gay best actor nominee? Probably. We probably would be dealing with it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like every time we hit a some sort of barrier gets broken, we're like, this isn't going to happen anymore. And then it just <laughs> continues to happen. Yeah. So oh, God. It would have been nice, but it, I don't think it would have changed the conversations we're having now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one would like to think it will end soon, but uh, just based on... The fact that this has been a trend really across all categories, and particularly in the actress categories, we finally started to see shifts with like Kristen Stewart and Ariana DeBose, but it, it just hasn't happened in any meaningful way because, I mean, I don't want to <laughs> get luxury, but, you know, the conversations around masculinity in Hollywood have not really evolved yeah. um, at all. <laughs> Well, this is, you know, when you were writing about the um, degendering awards categories and, you know, a note in that, but a really important one is that there are so many other ways in which the Oscars are so behind in representation before you even take gender identity into account. And so how, how can you fix all those things at once? It's hard to, hard to know how they could. But look, if some enterprising, you know, young Merchant Ivory-esque kind of production collective wants to look at the wealth of gay narratives in old Hollywood, like there are so many stories that could be told with an out gay actor now that would be prestige and awardsy, And so like the opportunity is there from this very narrow little uh, subset of, of narrative, you know, like um, Gods and Monsters is an interesting window into that, but it only kind of teases other stories that could be told. And and the Academy Awards love to give Oscars to movies about movies. So yeah. like you would almost like move your actor, whoever that would be playing George Cougar or whoever up to the top of the list. Yeah. Where's the George Cougar movie? Cougar movie. That was what my main thought <laughs> after that <laughs> big party scene. Played yeah, by the lawyer I mean, from Jurassic Park. Oh! <laughs> That's who that was! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good for him. He was having a good good 90s. And arguably, he also gets chomped on by a dinosaur in this movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
I did have the thought at, you know, at the end of the movie where, um, you know, you realize he's left a suicide note. And I was like, oh, what's going to happen? And then I was like, oh, it's a Sunset Boulevard ending. Like, of course. And it made me think that you can make so many different Sunset Boulevards. And this is such a good way to take that, you know, it's not a remake of it in any way, but like that idea of crumbling old Hollywood. Um, there's so many stories to tell in that exact vein. And, you know, we should have one a year, basically. Is this you predicting that somehow Nicole Scherzinger is going to win an Oscar for her sons, her upcoming Sunset Boulevard? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've made worse Oscar predictions on this podcast, so sure. What if they made it. Glenn Close present that award? <laughs> and she's like, this was just a stage role, and yet somehow Nicole Scherzinger has won. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Gods and Monsters is available to rent from many different platforms. Uh, I think despite our um, reservations it's on about parts of it. Oh, it's on Showtime, Sorry. see? I'm, yeah. Along with George and Tammy, you can catch up on that and you can uh, watch Gods and Monsters. Um, I think it's worth watching for, you know, so many of the reasons that we said, even if, you know, you need to put yourself back into 1998 to, to go along with some of the flourishes there. Quite accessible as well. Yes. Is it not, not the boring watch that Richard feared when he was 15, I think. No, and had I seen it when I was 15, we said this about My Beautiful Laundrette last week, like, I would have been like, <laughs> it would have been very eye-opening in a lot of ways. But you wouldn't be where you are today, so we can be That's glad true. that history it's happened true. the way that it did. Yeah. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week with our final Pride flashback for this June. We're doing 2002's Far From Heaven. Join us there. You can find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on Twitter and Instagram at Awards Insider, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And the award for the best feature at next year's VF Oscar party goes to Katie Rich. The pool full of naked men. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts you really don't want to miss this don't don't miss this don't miss it see you soon (laughs) 